0: Well, go ahead and grab a seat. It is good to be with you. Uh, If we've never met, I feel like I should introduce myself or reintroduce myself if you've forgotten who I am. Uh, My name's Alistair. I am the lead pastor here at St. Pete's, and I have been on sabbatical for the past five and a half months, so I haven't been around. I want to say thank you for that generous gift. It uh, was replenishing, rejuvenating. It was a wonderful time for me and my family, and I'm so grateful Uh, to have had that time to uh, step back from ministry for a season and just rest and so i come back uh, recharged and excited and ready to be here Uh, i want to just really quickly say thank you to preston can we just clap for preston and i know this kind of dates him a bit but he actually asked me could we do the arsenio hall you know do you remember that like he really wanted that I'm serious. He said, woo, 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 woo. And so, Preston, we're grateful for you, Prestivius. You served us so well. Um, Don't forget, his name's Prestivius. He loves Arsenio Hall, loves serving our church, and we're grateful. Uh, I'm grateful to our team, our staff. Uh, Let's clap for them. They've done such a good job getting everything going, um, and our leadership team. And so, it's just wonderful to to leave a church that I helped plant and come back and see it's alive and well and and has such great leaders in place. Uh, We're spoiled, we really are. And so uh, sincerely thank you to Preston, our team, our staff, and all of you uh, for continuing to worship through this trying time and and continuing to persevere through your faith. I had one quick personal update. Uh, In August, uh, my family got a dog. Uh, This is Baxter. And uh, this past Monday, you know, I'm writing my first sermon back in a while, and I was feeling really good about it. I was ahead where I normally was in my prep. I had a, a full, detailed outline. And then I got home, and the dog had literally eaten my sermon outline. And Julia had tried to piece it back together for me, but it was beyond repair. So if this sermon falls flat, it's not the sabbatical's fault. It's Baxter's fault. And Baxter is to blame for every problem in the world. So if you ever need an excuse... Blame Baxter. I'm just kidding. As far as the spectrum of dogs go, good to bad, he's, he's good. He's fine. He's average. He's right in the middle. Uh, this is our, if I've counted correctly, 37th, 37th sermon in the Gospel of Luke, and we are only in chapter 6. Uh, can you believe that? At this pace, I worked it out. It's going to take us almost 150 sermons. Originally, I thought about 100, but Looks like we're on track for 150, so hold tight. Uh, Now, the reason we're going so slowly through Luke is because it answers two questions of fundamental importance. Two questions of fundamental importance. Who is Jesus? And how do we live in an increasingly polarized and uh, contested world? And all these portraits of Jesus and his kingdom that Luke holds up before our eyes, they help us answer these questions with increasing clarity and beauty, and they invite us along for the journey. And so over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Plain. It's a small sampling and collection of the teachings of Jesus that just sketch a picture of the kingdom of God. And from the Sermon on the Plain, here's what we know the kingdom looks like. It looks like a kingdom of reversed blessedness. The poor inherit it. The hungry are satisfied. The weeping laugh. And those who are hated for the kingdom, well, they rejoice over that. And it's a kingdom marked by love, an inconvenient love, the love of enemies. It's a kingdom not of judgment and condemnation, but one of forgiveness and generosity. This is the sketch from the Sermon on the Plain, and it's a compelling one. It's a beautiful one. This is the life in Christ that we're invited into. And so in the passage just read read by Mitch, we're turning to a a kind of turning point in the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus wants us to consider how do our hearts relate to this vision of the kingdom of God. So let's reread our passage one more time. If you have a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, it'll also be on the screen behind me. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, their mouth speaks. So I have three points I want to explore this morning. Our hearts, the heart of Christ, and the remedy. So our hearts, his heart, and the remedy. Uh, To begin our first point, we just got to go through a quick anatomy lesson. Don't worry, it's not going to get weird. Uh, I only want to give us a brief spiritual anatomy of the heart. And also note that it's great that some things never change, like my jokes landing. So... (laughs) Because we need this spiritual anatomy because uh, this metaphor that Jesus uses of trees and fruit, of figs and grapes and what have you, it's there to help diagnose our hearts, to help understand how they beat and function in a spiritual sense. When it comes to the heart, uh, the metaphor meant something different to Jesus and the authors of Scripture than it does to our culture today. So the heart does not refer primarily to the physical organ or toward how someone feels about something or someone. The heart in scripture refers to a person as they are. It especially refers to your deepest thoughts, the deepest being of someone. Another metaphor akin to the heart in scripture is the innermost being. It's the center of who you are. The place where your desires and emotions and will and mind come together, and there you are. So nowadays, we might call this the self. Scripture calls it the heart or the innermost being. Now, in our passage, Jesus says, our hearts are storehouses of treasure. They're filled up with things, memories, thoughts, desires, values, you name it. And here's the single point he makes. What we store up in our hearts flows out through our lips into what we say. And what we store up in our hearts flows out in our actions into what we do. And I think on this point, it's easy to agree with Jesus. There's not much to argue about here. The issue for us is not necessarily about the spiritual anatomy of the heart, but its diagnosis, the diagnosis of the condition of the heart. You know, to diagnose our hearts, Jesus says, think about trees and fruit. Good fruit comes from a good tree. Likewise, bad fruit from a bad tree. In the same way, whatever you say or do can be traced back to your heart, to your innermost being. If you say or do something good, it comes out of some sort of good treasure stored up inside. If you do or say something bad, it comes out of some sort of bad treasure stored up inside. And once again, we probably agree with Jesus on this point. Now in our age of psychological insight, you might want to add some detail or nuance it, but generally we don't disagree with Jesus here. What we do and say flows out of what's going on inside of us. But I think we need to think Press into this metaphor in greater depth than this surface level reading of it. Because essentially, Jesus is asking us this Is the fruit of your heart good or bad? Is the fruit of your heart good or bad? Some of us can answer it in definitive terms it's good or it's bad. But some of us might find this hard to answer because if you say, Well, it's, it's good, isn't that a little arrogant? Isn't that a little prideful to say that it's all good? But if you say, oh, it's all bad, isn't that a little self-effacing and denying maybe some of the glimmers of, of good in our lives? In con, you know, in this contrast that Jesus sets up, good or bad, black or white, one or the other, it's at this point, this tension, that we start to disagree with him a little bit, or at least we want to qualify what he says. You know, I think many of us look at this passage and we say, It's a little more nuanced than this, don't you think, Jesus? Why are you backing baby into a corner? We can say and do good and bad things. We're not just black and white. Our lives are more like a moral gray, you know, perhaps varied shades of gray, some of us erring more consistently towards what is good and some of us erring more frequently to what is bad. But nevertheless, it's not just one or the other. So when we diagnose our hearts, We want more nuance, more subtlety, more permission for the complexity of the human experience. We're not all good, we're not all bad. Anyone tracking with me this far? Right. Now, of course, there's truth to this line of reasoning, and the rest of Scripture has more to say about the complexity of our hearts, but our resistance to the concrete challenge laid down by Jesus here, it needs to be examined. We need to look at why do we resist this contrast he sets up. You know, we might acknowledge, yeah, there's some warning signs that some things are amiss in our hearts, but it shouldn't be cause for great concern. Now, back in my touring days, which is, of course, the first illustration you get, it's my go-to, my band, we were on the the second leg of our tour, uh, making our way back from Ontario toward the East Coast, and we arrived in the glorious city of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Anyone from Moose Jaw? You're from Moose, Jaw? My from Moose Jaw? Your dad's from Moose Jaw. It's like the heavenly land. I like Moose Jaw. <laughs> but we, we arrive in Moose Jaw, and out of the engine of our van, we just start hearing this little ticking. just Tick, 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 tick. Just very quiet. We think, you know what? We should get that checked out. We've got a long drive ahead of us, so we go to a mechanic, and the diagnosis is all doom. <laughs> like, you're gonna be lucky to make it to Calgary. This, this isn't good. And unfortunately, he didn't have any of the parts that uh, we needed because, well, you're in Moose Jaw. And we couldn't afford to wait for as long as he said the parts would take because then we'd have to start canceling shows. And so we figured, you know what, let's just see how it goes. So we decided to keep driving. And you would think that's a bad decision. But nothing went wrong. We made it to Calgary against this false prophet of the mechanic. You know, (laughs) So the ticking sound, it's still there. It's still there, perhaps even a little bit louder, but... We get to Alberta, we start playing some of our shows, we're in Calgary, all seems well, but then we have a decision to make one day. Do we keep going? Do we drive over the Rockies, which had to be done overnight with this ticking van? Well, it was a unanimous decision. We go. So, she brought us safely this far, it's only a ticking sound. What could possibly go wrong? Well, you can guess what happened. We made it over the Rockies. (laughs) But over that six-hour drive, through the dead of night, that little ticking, it slowly became a loud screaming roar. Our engine became so loud that we couldn't even hear each other speak to one another. You couldn't think. It was so loud and ridiculous. We couldn't sleep. We're all tired. exhausted and we arrive in Revelstoke and we pull into a gas station to get some gas and I have a great idea. I said hey hold on before you fill up I'm gonna run inside and buy some fuel injector because that'll fix this and so I'm buying the fuel injector and I'll never forget this old guy behind the counter he's like you buying that for that van I'm like yeah he's like that is not magic fuel I heard you coming from a mile away (laughs) that van is going to die I was like no 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 I'm just gonna put this in we'll be good she's brought us safely this far so we fill up the van Three minutes down the road, engine dies. <laughs> Completely unsalvageable, just give it to a scrap yard for parts. We had to rent like a small U-hole with like a cab that only fits three people and we squeezed six people into the front and canceled our shows and drove home. Sometimes the ticking sound indicates something much worse, but we want to deny it. So that sense we share that our hearts are neither good or bad, but they're complex. It's like a ticking sound. We think it's only a little ticking sound, and we wanna deny that it indicates that maybe something much more serious is going on, but it's a red flag. The nuance we want, the complexity, it actually indicates that something is seriously wrong within our hearts. Think about it this way. If you take a bite of mixed fruit, half good fruit, Half rotten fruit. Is it a good or bad bite? It's sweet rot at best. And the bite is bad despite the good mixed in. So ultimately, at least in this passage, Jesus isn't asking us if we're a mixed bag. Of course, this is true in some way. But in our passage, Jesus is speaking in the starkest of terms. Good or bad fruit, which is coming out of your life? Are you a good or bad tree? And so when it comes to our hearts, when we're left to our own devices, the vision throughout Scripture is bleak before it's hopeful. It's bleak before it's hopeful. The prophet Jeremiah laments, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh or his body. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And elsewhere in the gospel of Matthew and Mark, Jesus um, wants to confront this problematic reality of our hearts. Here's what he says. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So, whatever good we may have done, we cannot deny the rot, the decay. The brokenness, the evil, the ability to do the things we don't want to do, and the conscious effort to do the things we know we shouldn't do. And so this is the diagnosis. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart is how we live our lives. And now there's a lot of different sources for the corruption of the heart. Let's be honest about that. Sometimes it could be from trauma, or shame, or, or self-condemnation, these dark forces you carry from the abundance of ways that people have sinned against you. You know, the, the rot from from these forces can cause us to lash out or react. You know, the reactivity of shame or maybe withdraw because of these forces at work in your heart because of things done to you. And then, of course, there is the sin that dwells within us, isn't there? The sin that finds its origins in our own thoughts and desires and actions. So whether it's how we're sinned against or whether it's the sin that wells up from within so easily, however we want to look at it, the heart is sick. There is a ticking sound that indicates a trouble so significant that if left untended to, you are on the verge of total breakdown. The biblical answer, I told you, is bleak before it's hopeful. So having thought about our hearts, let's turn to our second point, the heart of Jesus. Let's look at the heart of Jesus. The simple principle Jesus lays down in verse 45 is this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it seems like a good idea to me to look at some of the abundant things Jesus said and what they tell us about his heart. For example, in the sermon on the plain, you heard Lloyd preach these words from Jesus, love your enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies in a deeply polarized culture, Jesus freely and frequently moved across boundary lines of division. You know, he, dis- he demonstrated his love toward the common I- uh, enemies of Israel. He hung out with Samaritans and even Gentiles. He, he sat with a, a wearied and uh, stigmatized woman at a well. And he also uh, in- interacted with uh, a woman who was so desperate to heal her daughter that she fell down at his knees, a Samaritan and a, and a Gentile, enemies of Israel. Jesus showed his love of enemies to the, religious, uh, to the enemies of the religious elite. He would eat with sinners and tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. He would even rejoice in their presence and say that salvation had come to them, the enemies of the religious elite. The very problem with society, Jesus would say, here's salvation at work. He would dine with these enemies. And yet Jesus would show his love to the enemies of the marginalized. He would also dine with the religious elite. He would meet with people like Nicodemus or Simon and call them to the kingdom of God. He even invited from within his 12 disciples two enemies, a zealot and a tax collector, to follow him together. So it doesn't matter from what vantage point you stand, Jesus crossed a boundary line for you and invited in an enemy, loved an enemy. Because when Jesus says, love your enemy, his words flow from his heart. Out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. And Jesus says, love your enemies, because that's what dwells in his heart, the love of enemies. And there's no separation between his his speaking and his doing. And so it's no wonder that reflecting on this, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and while we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to God. Now, in the Sermon on the Plain, we've also heard Jesus say, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Now, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Scripture makes this clear, and we proclaim this week after week in the creeds. But until then, Jesus delays the coming judgment. In John's gospel, for example, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Because God does not desire anyone's death, not even the death of the wicked, but wants all people to have an opportunity to repent and turn to him and live. So when the religious elite drag a woman caught in adultery before Jesus to make an example of of her, no wonder he says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. It shouldn't surprise us that reflecting on the words Jesus spoke and how he lived that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus is betrayed, And tortured and crucified, what does he say upon the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is the very reason he came into the world. God gave his beloved Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the heart of Jesus is not filled up with words of judgment or condemnation, it's abounding with forgiveness and generosity. And this is the heart of Jesus, and this is his heart. Because in the heart of Jesus is the heart of God. The God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The God of justice and rightful judgment. The God who alone is good. As Jesus says to one person, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So when we look to what Jesus says, we need to connect the dots. Everything he says comes out of the abundance of his heart. It flows out of his heart. And it reveals just how empty our own hearts are. You know, when push comes to shove, when we're brought to our limits, usually our worst qualities seep out, don't they? And when we look at Christ and all the pain he endured, the suffering he faced, the torture, what pours out? Love and forgiveness and grace, the desire to heal and reconcile all people to himself. And so in Christ, we see the true purpose or the telos of the human heart. The heart, when it is well, is meant for uninterrupted communion with God. It is the place of union with God where God richly dwells. It is in the heart that we learn the intimate and uncoerced ways of love, the ways of the kingdom. And so Jesus, he shows us, he reveals to us the purpose of the human heart and if this is its true destiny, how can we justify any bad fruit whatsoever? If the true purpose of the human heart is uninterrupted communion with God, if that's how a healthy heart is functioning, how can you justify any bad fruit coming out of the heart? Our hearts do not compare to the heart of Christ, not even close. And so this brings me to our last point, the remedy. Now let's say we're going to admit There's some bad fruit in our hearts. And we acknowledge there's some corrupt treasure going on in there. What do we do about it? I was staying with my parents for part of the sabbatical, which is great when you turn 40 and you just live with your parents again. It's awesome. And uh, they have these pear trees in their front yard. And they produce more pears than what my parents know what to do with. But one of the pear trees in their yard developed a deep crack from uh, a major arm of a tree, what's that called, branch? Yeah. And uh, the center thing, trunk. trunk, right. Branch, trunk, split, and it's, it's growing. And we could see it was um, compromising the integrity of the tree. That if we, this tree, it's bearing more fruit than what my parents know what to do with, but if we don't tend to it, the tree is gonna split apart and die. So my nephew and I, we get these um, ropey things that have like the cranks, and we, we wrap it, I'm really a hands, hands-on person. And um, straps? Straps with cranky things. And so, ratchets, things I'm learning. And uh, <laughs> we put a couple around the tree and we crank them real tight. And we're like, that'll do, that'll fix it. And then my dad, being an intelligent man, called a tree expert, an arborist, I'm told. And from what I understand, these are individuals who become experts in trees under the supervision of Treebeard in Fangorn Forest. <laughs> and they learn the secret language of trees. and so. The tree expert comes over, and he examines our work, and guess what? He's like, you actually did a pretty good job. I was like, yeah, we saved the tree. He's like, no, and so he took it off, drills a hole straight through the branch into the trunk, and then puts this iron rod just like straight through the tree in these massive metal clamps. He's like, that'll do it. Uh, This tree will stand until the end of the world until it's struck by lightning, whichever one comes first. (laughs) And so now the tree goes on producing more fruit than what my parents know what to do with. We are all like this broken pear tree. We are split through and compromised and endangered. And like this pear tree, despite our condition, we still produce fruit. But on some fundamental level, we know we need to fix our condition. And so you might listen to this passage from Jesus and conclude I need to try harder, I need to bear good fruit. I need to clean up my act. I need to get my heart and actions aligned, straightened up, fixed up. But this is moralism. And this is not the takeaway from the passage. This isn't the message of the gospel. The pear tree was unable to repair itself. In the same way, the van was unable to repair itself. Something external had to happen. There must be an intervention, if not the tree will die like the engine in the van. Something outside of it had to take place. And it needs to be an intervention, not by the best efforts of well-meaning people who don't even know the proper name for a rope with a cranky thing, but through the expertise of someone who knows all there is to know about trees. In the same way in spiritual matters, we need an intervention. But from someone who knows all there is to know about the human heart and soul, and the only person who knows all there is to know about the human heart and soul is God Himself manifest in the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is the arborist of the human soul. He came to intervene in our hearts and heal us through His own heart for us. This is the gospel out of his heart comes our forgiveness and redemption. He was judged and condemned on the cross so that we can be forgiven and receive life. In the heart of Christ, we see God's love on display that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, not so that God could love us, but because God loves us. God went to these lengths to reconcile us to himself because He loves us, has always loved us, and will always love us. He wants to heal us. He wants to to dwell in our hearts. We can't earn this. We can't clean our acts up to deserve this. We can't bear enough good fruit so as to be worthy of it. That's what makes it a gift, a generous gift. Jesus bears all this good fruit out of his life and he just holds a basket of it before us and says, take, eat, open your hands and receive with faith what I've accomplished for you. See, Jesus, he knows the nature of our hearts, the darkness and the sickness there, the parts that are genuinely broken and the darkness we care from our suffering and enduring the sin of others. And he knows we can't produce the kind of good fruit required for his kingdom. But there's a different kind of fruit we can bear we go back a bit in the gospel of john uh, john the baptist lets us know the kind of fruit jesus is actually looking for here's what john the baptist proclaimed in luke chapter 3 verses 8 through 9 bear fruit in keeping with repentance every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so the good fruit that jesus wants in our lives is the fruit that comes from repentance and faith in him, fruit that comes from saying, oh Lord, I can't do this on my own, but I know you're good and loving. Come dwell in me and heal in me. Produce in me something I can't produce in myself. That is the good fruit that comes from the heart of repentance. And as Christ dwells in us, he does bear good fruit in us and through us. And like my parents Pear tree, we're going to bear more good fruit than we know what to do with. It's going to overflow and bless the world and bless others. There will be an abundance. But it must be fruit in keeping with repentance, the continual renewal of our hearts and minds and turning to the ways of Jesus. And as we do this, we become the people of the, the Sermon on the Plain, the blessed people, the type of people who can love their enemies the type of people who don't give into a culture of polarization and judgment and condemnation, but choose love and forgiveness and generosity. And we can say to Jesus, Lord, help me love these humans because I sure don't know how. Help me love my enemies. And if we could even pray, help me love my family, my friends, just the people I don't like. I need you to do something in me and change something in me so that I can become more like you. And guess what? Those are the sort of prayers that God loves to answer. And that's how we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So, friends, this is what Christ offers us His good fruit coming out of His beautiful heart to reconcile us to the God of the universe and to one another. So, let's pray.